Welcome to First Baptist Church. You're listening to the preaching ministry of Pastor Sherman Burkhead. Please check us out on the internet at fbcboron.org. Romans chapter 12, beginning in verse 3, and the word of the Lord reads, For by the grace given to me, I say to everyone among you not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think, but to think with sober judgment, each according to the measure of faith that God has assigned. For as in one body we have many members, and the members do not all have the same function. So we, though many, are one body in Christ and individually members of one another. Having gifts that differ according to the grace given to us, let us use them if prophecy in proportion to our faith, if service in our serving, and the one who teaches in his teaching, the one who exhorts in his exhortation, and the one who contributes in generosity, the one who leads with zeal, and the one who does acts of mercy with cheerfulness. This is the word of the Lord. Randy Alcorn, pastor and author, has once wrote <clears throat> that humility, humility isn't pretending we're unworthy because it's spiritual. It's recognizing we're unworthy because it's true. So I want to welcome you back to our series on the letter to the Romans titled The Power of the Gospel. And the reason why we, we named this series The Power of the Gospel is because Paul, as he says, the gospel is the power of God for salvation for everyone who believes. The gospel, the truth about who we are and what God has done to save us is the very power of God himself to bring radical transformation into the lives of those who believe it. I think sometimes it's easy for us to talk about salvation and forget that regeneration and salvation is, is one of the greatest miracles ever wrought by God, that he's taken humans that were dead in their sin and made them alive again. The gospel is the power of Almighty God to save sinners. It is the power of God to not just make bad people good, but to make dead people alive again. It's the power of God to take those who are at war with God and bring them into a state of peace. It's the power of God to reconcile wretched mankind to a holy and righteous and just and perfect God. And, it's, and if that were not enough, it's also the power of God to reconcile us one to another. Because what is the law of God? I mean, we know what the Ten Commandments are, but really, what is the essence of God's standard for righteousness? Well, Jesus himself tells us that he tells us what the law is in basically two commands. It's to love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, and all your strength, and then to love your neighbor as yourself. And he says that this is the summary of the law, that all of the law and the prophets, all the Old Testament hang on those two commands, that we love God and love others. But what's the problem? The problem has been is that because of our sin, we just can't do that. Right? We won't do that. It's not in us to love God the way that he is calling us to love him. And it's not in us to love people the way that God has commanded us to do so. Now, there might be times where we feel deep emotion for God. We might feel real love for God and at times feel love for other people, right? And, and we even might try really hard to fulfill God's law by concentrating and disciplining ourselves and, and putting in rules to help guide our efforts and working really hard. But in the end, what we know is that we're going to fall short. That was, by the way, Martin Luther's conviction. He tried everything he could to be obedient. He went to confession multiple times a day. He did everything in his power to make God pleased and to love his neighbor and to love God. And what he found is he was more and more convicted because he knew he couldn't do it. We don't love God supremely and walk in obedience toward him the way that we ought. And we don't love others the way that we, we need to. 
because our sin keeps us from that. It's impossible for us to keep the law. We can't live out the law of God. That's the bad news of the gospel, by the way. All have sinned and fallen short of this glorious standard. But the good news is that Jesus came into the world and did it all for us. He came and he lived the life that we couldn't live, fulfilling the covenant of works that Adam failed to fulfill. And he perfectly loved God in his humanity and mankind as as we were required to do. And then he died in our place to make atonement for our sins, which by the way is us failing to do those simple things, loving God and loving others. Jesus did it all for us. And then by faith, the promise is, by faith in Christ and his finished work on the cross, our sins are forever washed away and the righteousness of Christ is is given to us. Not that we earned, but that he earned in his humanity and that that righteousness is credited to us as if it was our very own. And, And through this gospel, We are reconciled back to God in a relationship that we were created for. But even more, we are reconciled by God to one another. That's the power of of the gospel. That's the power of God to restore us, to live the way that we were created to live. And now Paul in Romans chapter one through 11, has explained what the gospel is and how the gospel works and and the blessings that the gospel bestows on those who believe and the unshakable hope that the gospel guarantees. Now, after that, Paul begins to unpack for us how then we are to live in light of this gospel truth. Now that we've been reconciled to God, now that we've been reconciled to man. And the thing that we need to keep our eyes on is the basis of how we live This gospel is about relationships. The way in which we live this gospel is about our relationship with God and our relationship with our fellow man. Because Paul, if you you realize, if you read the, the scriptures, you find out that Paul doesn't tell you to put your faith in Jesus Christ and then now go live a solitary life just reading your Bible, singing songs and hymns to yourself and waiting for Christ to return and just don't get into trouble. That's not the call of the Christian life. Nowhere in the Bible do you see go and live this solitary Christian life by yourself in devotion to God. When you read the scriptures, what you find is a Christian life is meant to be lived in relationship with God and with other people. Paul in Romans is is saying, now that you believed the gospel, now that you have been reconciled to God and reconciled to man, go and live like it. Now that you've been saved, go and live your life that you were created to live. And in verses 1 and 2, Paul explains that in light of the gospel and by the mercy of God to save us, our right response to him in gratitude is to live our entire life for his glory. That we're to live every part of our life for him and his glory. And we do so not as an act of obligation, but an act of worship. From the way that we do the dishes, to the way that we raise our children, to the way that we treat people at work, all the way to the way we gather for Sunday worship, our entire lives, including our thoughts, words, actions, and attitudes, are all to be dedicated to God as a living sacrifice. We are to offer all of ourselves to God now that we've been saved. And the way that we do that, in which we live for him, is to not let our hearts, Paul had already said, to let our hearts and minds be shaped by the world and the culture around us. But instead, we're to be transformed from the inside out by the renewal of our minds through the power of the Holy Spirit and the word of God so that we will know what it is that God wants us to do and how to live, what is pleasing to him. Now, with that being said, now that we've been made right in a relationship with him, This is how we are to live in relationship with God. That's what we see in verses one and two. But then in verse three, Paul begins to explain how we're to live in light of the gospel toward other people, toward our fellow man. In chapters 12 through 16, Paul's going to outline how we're to live 
out the command to love your neighbor as ourselves. And he's going to talk about even the difficult relationships, like our relationship with the government, by the which, by the way, is made up of people, right? And how we are to live towards strangers. I think more and more of us in our modern culture have become more introverted and really don't want to be around strangers. And even how we're to live towards those who don't like us and hate us. Paul's going to explain how the power of the gospel should shape how we live our lives in the world towards other people now that we've been reconciled to God and to man. But what we need to see is the first group that Paul talks about in how we are to live in light of the gospel is not strangers and it is not even the members of our own physical family. The first group of people that Paul addresses and talks about living toward in light of the gospel is the family of God. It's the church, the place that Paul starts to describe for us and to encourage us to live by the mercy of God is in relationship with each other as brothers and sisters in Christ. That's where Paul begins. And this is important for us, especially given in the context we live in today. We live in a country that's very individualistic and self-autonomous, which are not bad things on their own, but they shape how we see everything, it seems. And we live in a culture that's very self-focused and consumer-driven, which means we, from the time we've been very little, have been told that our lives are about who? About us. You've been told that your life's about you. I've been told that my life is about me, which means right, my life is about my wants and my wishes and my desires and my happiness. You've heard people say that before. I need to find my happiness. I need to find my truth. My life is about what I think and what I value. It's all about me. And the impact of these things on our faith has been a development of Christianity that is also in a very real sense, self-focused. Many people believe that, that, that salvation is about them, right? that my faith is about me in Jesus. I know this should be true because that was exactly my attitude when I first came to faith. Right? It's about me and my experience with him. All I need is my Bible. All I need is, is, is the Holy Spirit. All I need is my personal devotional time and my worship jams, and I am good. I don't need other believers. I don't need the church. I don't need, to, they don't need a pastor to shepherd me. I don't need to be a part of a community of believers. I don't need corporate worship. I don't need to grow and to serve. I don't need all that religious, that you know, traditional, institutional religious stuff. My relationship with God is simply about me. This is why, by the way, there are so many self-proficient Christians who will tell you that they have a relationship with Christ but live completely outside of the body Christ. They feel no desire to be connected to a local congregation because they see their faith as simply an individual private activity. I mean, the truth is, if, we, if we're just going to be honest with ourselves, if 50%, if half of the people in this community who profess to be Christians were actively involved in participating in church life, all of the Bible-believing churches in our community would have to have multiple services because we couldn't have enough seats to get them all in one room. All the churches would be full. But so many people think that they're Christians living the Christian life, but, but they live in apathy apart from the family of God. But Paul, when he begins to talk about how we live out the gospel, how we live towards other men, where does he begin? He doesn't begin with other people. He begins with, with the believers, how we are to live with each other, the church. And that's what we see in verses 3 through 13. How we live with our brothers and sisters in Christ in light of the gospel. It's only after that he begins to talk about all the other people in the world. So how we live in community with one another is vitally important. It's a vitally important outworking of the gospel and the mercy of God in our lives. And, what, and, and that is what is going to take us a couple weeks to get through. We're going to spend a couple weeks talking about this and unpacking this. So turn with me to Romans chapter 12, and let's look at verse 3. Paul writes, 
But by, by the grace given to me, I say to everyone among you to not think of himself more highly than he ought to think. The very first thing I want you to notice is that Paul, though he is an apostle of Christ, he doesn't simply say, right, in light of the gospel, I command you, believers, to do something. I command you to live in a certain way. He doesn't, he doesn't do that. Now, he could have, right? Because Paul, again, is an apostle called by God, called to de declare and to defend the gospel and the doctrines of the church. Paul had the authority to command believers. Paul spoke with God's authority. You know how we know that? Because his letters are included in the word of God. All of his letters, including Romans and Ephesians and Galatians, were part of Scripture because we believe, we confess that his words are inspired by the Holy Spirit. And as such, they are actually God's own word to us. So Paul certainly could speak with direct authority. He could just say, I command you to do this. But he doesn't do that here. He says, by the grace given to me, I say to you. It's easy for us to overlook this, but what Paul recognizes is something very important I think all of us need to take stock in, and that is all authority. I want you to hear me on that. All authority ultimately comes from God. All authority is derivative from God and is a gift of grace from Him. Whatever authority you might have, your authority as a parent your authority as a supervisor at work, your authority as a leader in the church, your authority in whatever sphere that you have some amount of authority in doesn't come from you or your position. Ultimately, it comes from God above who is the source of all authority. And, and whatever authority you have invested in you is not a divine right, but a gift of grace. But understand, that gift of grace is a gift for you, and it's also a gift for all of those that you serve. You see, we're given authority, so we might use that to serve others. You see, your authority as a parent is not so that you can be the boss and order your kids around. It was given to you so that you can serve your children by shaping them, nurturing them, loving them, leading them, growing in them, helping them to develop to be well-adjusted adults. Your authority is to be used to serve them. Your authority at work isn't so that you can just get your way or boss people around or fire that guy you don't like. Your authority that you've been given is to empower and to support and to train your subordinates in order to accomplish the work that they've been assigned to, which, by the way, it benefits the company, and benefits them. Your authority, whatever sphere you have authority, be it the classroom or wherever, is, a is not a benefit of your position. It is a gift of grace that you're to use in service of other people, which means God has granted authority to people in your life for your good. God has entrusted authority into people's, in, in your, to people in your life for your good and to serve you. And the reason why this is important is because the same culture that causes many people to want to live autonomous lives apart from the church also causes many Christians to be anti-authoritarian, especially in the realm of faith. Many people who call themselves Christians refuse to acknowledge that God has granted other people in their lives authority over them in the church, especially when it comes to pastors and elders. Many people imagine the church family as this gigantic democracy where we all just kind of get together and sit around talking and about how we think we should worship and how we should live this Christian life because so many people don't like the idea of being under biblical authority not recognizing that the authority given to the leaders is a gift of grace to all of us. In fact, while we are on this subject, turn with me to Ephesians chapter 4.
We're going to read verse 7 and then jump to verse 11. Ephesians 4, verse 7, Paul again writes to the Ephesians, but grace was given to each one of us according to the measure of Christ's gift. And then in verse 11, he talks about the gifts that he gave to the church. And he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds and teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for the building up of the body of Christ until we all attain the unity of the faith and the knowledge of the Son of God, to mature manhood, to the measure and the stature of the fullness of Christ, so that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness and deceitful schemes. Now, again, there's a whole lot here for us to unpack this morning, but we don't have time for that. But notice the overarching theme here. Gifts of grace are given in Christ. And what were the, the gifts that God had given the church to benefit the church? The gifts that he gave were church leadership, apostles, prophets, evangelists, shepherds, or pastors, and teachers. God gave to the church leaders who had the authority for the benefit of the entire church. Now, I could spend all day on this text, but what we need to acknowledge and accept is that God has placed leaders in the church for all of our benefit. That's why he's invested authority in those leaders as a gift of grace for us all. And I want you to hear me, to reject this authority that they exercise by the grace of God is to spurn God's gifts. In America, we don't like to think in those terms because we're so individualistic, but that's the truth. You realize that. When, when someone says, I don't want to be a part of a church, they are spurning the gift of God's grace. They're spurning one of his means of grace. It's meant to benefit them. When someone says, I don't need to be a part of a church family, they're spitting on God's gift and showing contempt for the giver. When people refuse to submit to the leadership God has placed in their lives, they're not simply rejecting their pastor or their elders or their church leaders or the deacons that that are entrusted to help take care of them. They reject God's word and God's gracious gift for them. And even worse, it's an exercise in pride. And, And the reason why I know this is true is because at one point in my Christian life, I had to repent of the same attitude. The Word of God says in Hebrews 13, 17, Paul writes, Obey your leaders and submit to them, for they are keeping watch over your souls of those who will have to give an account. Let them do this with joy, not with groaning, for that will be no advantage to you. When Paul gives Timothy the qualifications of pastors and elders, the word he uses for the office of pastor and elder is the word overseer, someone who exercises oversight. The Bible makes it clear that God has invested authority in those who lead the church, and that authority isn't compulsion. It's a gift of grace for the leaders and for for those that they serve. Now, why do we fear this? Besides the fact that we don't want to be under authority, we're all stubborn that way. I'll confess it if you won't, right? But but what is our fear? Our fear is that those who have authority would then abuse that authority. Because we've never seen that before, have we? This is a reasonable fear, right? Because we have seen it before. That people in authority can and often do abuse authority. And we've seen it even in the church. We've seen spiritual abuse. We've seen religious leaders who abuse their authority given to them. By the way, that's exactly why you are to be careful in the church family that you look for, that, that the church model is built on biblical leadership structures who have qualified elders who themselves are under authority. As Peter says, so I exhort the elders among you, notice plural, elders, not just one, elders among you, as a fellow elder and a witness to the sufferings of Christ, as well as a partaker in the glory that is going to be revealed, shepherd lead, guide, shepherd the flock of God that is among you, exercising oversight, not under compulsion, but willingly, as God would have you, not for shameful gain, but eagerly, not domineering over those in your charge, but being examples 
to the flock. And when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the unfading crown of glory. You see, the gift that God has given the church is leaders who are to shepherd, who are willing to lead by example, who themselves are submitted to Christ and His Word. Those who are willing to use the gift of authority for the good of those that they're shepherding. By, by the way, that's why our confession, why, why, why confessions are so helpful to us. Confessions are helpful because they give everyone in the church an outline to objectively examine churches and church leaders to see if they're operating faithfully according to the doctrine set forth in the scriptures. Confessions give everybody the same tool to be able to say, wait a minute, I don't think he's right about that. Let's go back and look at this. You know, I think he's outside of his authority. Let's look and see why. But the truth is God has granted to the church and to individual believers the gift of leadership and authority. God in his grace calls us all in his in this family, and this family has a structure that we are all called to willingly submit to those in authority. And those in authority are to lead, not by compulsion, and not by force, but by grace. And that's the example that Paul sets for us in his own words. Paul says, for by the grace given to me, I, even though I have authority invested from God, say to everyone among you to not think of himself more highly than he ought to think, but think with sober judgment. Now, now the first thing we need to recognize in our relationship with the family of God is the gracious gift of authority, but the second thing we need to recognize is the gospel life is a life of humility. Again, Paul says, don't think too highly of yourself. In other words, don't allow yourself to have an inflated view of yourself. Don't be arrogant, don't be egotistical. But instead, he says, think with yourself of sound judgment or with self-control. You see, the transformed life that we live by the gospel is a life of humility. Because we recognize the truth as, again, Randy Alcorn states, right? Humility isn't pretending we're unworthy because it's spiritual. It's recognizing we're unworthy because it's true. We're not good people who sometimes do bad things and who just need a second chance or to need, need, to, need some minor improvements. We, are, we were dead people. We were corrupt people. We were depraved in all of our faculties, in our thinking, in our reasoning, in our emotions. We were depraved people who did only the good things we did by the grace of God in spite of our depravity. And in light of that, we recognize that we have nothing in ourselves to boast about before God because we brought nothing into the relationship with him. There's nothing that we could do. There's nothing that we did to merit. Right? We were rescued by the, the sheer grace of God through faith. God, by his own will, with no reference to our goodness, chose on his own accord to be merciful to us in spite of us. And so there's nothing for us to be puffed up about. There's nothing for us to, to, to take pride in. There's nothing for us to boast in but the cross of Christ. We were rescued in spite of ourselves. We were rescued because God's undeserved love and our, and our rock-hard hearts were supernaturally removed and were replaced with hearts of flesh. And we have been given, as the word says, a new nature, and we have been given the Spirit of God that lives in us. And so there's nothing in us or about us that ought to cause us to be proud or arrogant or self-righteous or self-focused because especially, especially in the family of God. As Richard Baxter pointed out, the very design of the gospel is to abase us and the work of grace is begun and carried on in humiliation. Humility is not a mere ornament of a Christian, but an essential part of the new creature. It is a contradiction in terms to be a Christian and not be humble. This God-given humility that we receive because of the gospel ought to cause us to recognize our need for Christ continually. But it also ought to cause us to recognize our need for our church family too and our need for qualified church leadership in our lives. This new humility ought to cause us to, to run from our self-reliance. 
It ought to cause us to see how much we need gospel community. And this humility ought to help us to see ourselves for what we really are, sinners saved by the sheer grace of God, and that we are certainly children of God, but children by that mercy. And that sober understanding ought to cause us to walk in gratitude and in humility and in grace and in submission to one another. And it also should cause us to see our need for each other and our need to serve one another. Paul writes, for by the grace given to me, I say to everyone among you to not think of himself more highly than he ought to think, but to think with sober judgment, each according to the measure of faith that God has assigned for, because as in one body, we have many members and the members do not all have the same function. So we, though many, are one body in Christ and individually members of one another. Paul says the reason why we need to walk and live in humility is because not only are we sinners saved by grace, but we are all part of one body, the body of Christ. Which, by the way, is why our ongoing prayer is unity. Not just in here, but unity amongst the believers in other congregations. Right. This is another part of the radical power of the gospel, by the way. We who were once strangers... We who didn't have anything in common, we who maybe have even been enemies at some point in our life, are now part of the same family. And the thing that we need to realize is even though that we are not all the same and we have different backgrounds and different stories and different functions and different gifts, we need to realize we are all still vital parts of the same body. We're essential parts of the family of God. I've said it before and I will say it again. You need the church and the church needs you. Paul says, we though many are one body in Christ and individually members of one another. I want you to stop with me and just hear these words of Paul again. It's easy for us to read to the parts that we like and, and that are our favorite parts and overlook some of this stuff, but this is essential, right? Paul says, we, though many, though we are individuals, are one body, a singular body in Christ, and because we are united in Christ, we are individually members of one another. That's the word of God speaking. We are members of one another. This is the part where we as Americans have to strip away this self-autonomy that we have and our individualism and our self-centeredness. This is the part where we need to repent of our, we don't need the church to be Christian attitude because the word of God clearly says we need each other because not only are we part of the same body, we're part of each other. I hope you see that in the scriptures as a member of the body of Christ, as those who belong to his family, not only do we have, are we part of Christ and Christ is part of us, we have and are part of each other. Our lives are deeply and intimately connected in ways that you can't even possibly fathom. And because of this connection, we need each other because we're part of each other. Hear me, I need you in my life. And you need me in your life. And you need each other in your life. Now, we, we might not serve the same exact function in the family of God, and we might have different, you know, immediate families. But the truth is we still need each other. We need each other to bring we need each other. It brings the relationship and the family of God together, which means what happens, by the way, what happens to you then happens to me. What happens to you happens to me. When you suffer, I suffer. When you rejoice, I rejoice. 
when your heart is heavy, my heart is heavy. We're not just a bunch of unrelated individuals who come to Jesus to consume worship. We're not just a bunch of people who gather in an auditorium like moviegoers do. We are gathered, the, the gathered body of Christ, assembling together to worship the King in unison. And we are here to support each other and to love each other and to edify each other and encourage each other and to serve each other. When we come to faith in Christ, Paul says we're united with him in his death and new life. By the way, that's what baptism stands for. Right? And that's what the, the Lord's table reminds us of. As we take the Lord's table this morning, we're reminded of the union we have with Christ. We're united to Christ in a very real and tangible way. That, that we are in him and he is in us. But the thing that we need to confess and the truth that we need to live by is our union with Christ brings us in union to one another. As our confession in chapter 26, verse uh, paragraph 6 says, the members of these churches are saints by calling, visibly displaying and demonstrating in and by their profession and life, their obedience to the call of Christ. They willingly agree to live together according to Christ's instructions, giving themselves to the Lord and to one another by the will of God, which with its stated purpose in following the ordinances of the gospel. Our union with Christ brings us into union with one another, a real union with one another. A union, by the way, that's even closer than those that we're related to by biology. I think you've all heard the expression before that blood is thicker than water. Right? You might have even used that one before. It's oftentimes quoted to say, to use to say that biological families are, are stronger relationships than, than your other relationships. But I want you to know that that is a misquote of the actual quote. Because the actual quotation goes like this. The blood of the covenant is thicker than the water of the womb. In other words, the family relationship in the body of Christ is stronger and more important than your biological relationships. Why? Because your relationship with Christ is the most important relationship you're ever going to have. That's why Jesus says right, that you got to love me supreme. Right? If you don't hate your parents, and he wasn't talking about actual literal hate, what he was saying is if your love for me isn't greater than your love for other people, then you can't be of me. Jesus Christ is our most important relationship, and our union with Christ brings us in union with him, and that union brings us into relationship with one another. And because of that, because of that, we are to live together in humility and grace, recognizing that we're united by the same grace and that we're to use the gifts that God has invested in us to, to serve one another. Now, Paul says, for because as in one body we have many members and the members do not all have the same function, so we, though many, are one body in Christ and individually members of one another having gifts that differ according to the grace given to us, let us use them. Let us apply them. By God's grace for us and for our church family, he's given all of us different gifts. Paul says that these gifts are not simply to be possessed and held on to. They are to be used in service to each other. Remember the, the parable where the servants were given different amounts of gold and the ones who applied them diligently and got a return were rewarded. And the one that just held on to it but didn't make use of it, what he had was taken from him. We were given the gifts that we have been given and the resources we've been given to be used in service to each other. We're to use the gifts that God has instilled in us and given us to to serve one another. We don't come together once a week just to sit around consuming a worship service. We are united together to grow in our relationship with God and each other. And part of that is serving each other. And Paul goes on to say, if prophecy in proportion of, to your faith, if service in our serving to the one who teaches in, the, in his teaching, the one who exhorts in his exhortation, the one who contributes in generosity, the one who leads with zeal, the one who does acts of mercy with cheerfulness. We're to use the gifts that God has given us, even though we have different gifts. We're to use them in service to one another. 
Now, there's a number of different ways for us to examine and analyze and apply this list of gifts and talk about exactly what Paul means by the individual gifting here. Right, we could spend all Sunday on that, and I could actually probably do a sermon series on that. But for our purposes and the limited time we have here, I want to again look at the overarching theme. And what I want you to first notice is these gifts that, that, that Paul expounds here can be divided into two basic categories. You have, you have speaking gifts, gifts of the word, which is prophecy, teaching, exhortation, right? And then you have action gifts. You know, practical kinds of gifts, service, giving, acts of mercy, speaking gifts, and action gifts. Incidentally, by the way, the church's leadership structure, when you read, especially the pastoral epistles, is divided into two similar ways. You have theological leadership, or the ministry of the word, and then you have practical leadership, the ministry of works. Pastors and elders are the theological leaders of the church, and they lead through the ministry of the word. Deacons are the practical servant leaders of the church, and they lead through ministries of work and service. Pastors preach and teach. Deacons oversee physical needs of the flock. Right? Well, these gifts that Paul speaks of fall into those similar kinds of categories. You have word gifts and works gifts. And what we need to understand is that the body of Christ, I want you to hear me on this, the body of Christ needs both of them. We need to be taught the Word of God. We need the Word of God authoritatively declared and proclaimed. We need to be educated and edified by the Word. But we also need to be served with works. We need to be fed. We need to be helped. We need to be encouraged. We need to be loved. We need to be ministered to. We need help moving from one house to the next. Right? Want to find out who's really there to serve, just announce to the church that you're moving, see who shows up. I'm joking, but it, not really. You know? <laughs> we need to help each other, right? We need each other's spiritual strength, and we need each other's physical strength too. We're not, to meant, we're not meant to live this Christian life by ourselves in our own strength. And the thing that Paul is saying is, we're all of us given gifts specific to us by God, and we're to use those humbly, not, not arrogantly, but humbly in service to one another. Every one of us has been gifted to serve everyone else around us. Some people have the gift of teaching, and they should teach, and some have the gift of mercy, and that should lead, and they should lead the charge in comforting people and caring for, for others. Some have been given you know, great financial resources and are able to generously contribute to the work that the church does and meet other, the needs of other people. There are many different ways for us to serve, and we all need to serve. Not just the pastors and elders, not just the deacons, not just the, the children's ministry directors. All of us need to serve in some capacity. Again, I, mean, I want you to hear what Paul says in Ephesians. And he gave the apostles, prophets, evangelists, and shepherds, and teachers. And he gave them for a purpose. And the purpose is this, to equip the saints. Who are the saints? All believers for a purpose. And what's that purpose? The work of the ministry for the building up the body of Christ until we all attain the unity of the faith and the knowledge of the Son of God and mature manhood. I want you to see the connection here. God, by His grace, gave the church leadership to equip church members to use the gifts that He has given them to serve one another. And the purpose of that is so the church members would, would be built up together as the body of Christ and become unified in their faith and grow in their knowledge and their understanding of God and become spiritually mature the way that they were created to be. That's how the Christian life is to be lived in the church. That's why we desperately need each other. And by the way, that's the foundation, I want you to hear me, that's the foundation of what God is doing in the world. We live in a hyper-media world where social media abounds and we're always attracted to, to the people with the loudest voices and the most views. But I want you to hear me. God is not bringing the gospel to the world through the efforts of a few inspired individuals. He is not bringing the gospel to the world through some inspired megachurch pastors who write a lot of books and make a lot of money at conferences. He is not bringing the gospel to the world through some compelling evangelist in their crusades. By the way, even Billy Graham said, if 5% of the people who came to his crusade were saved, he would rejoice in that. 
God is bringing the gospel to the world by and large through the body, through the church. When Paul, which Paul calls the, the, the household of God or the pillar and the buttress of the truth. God is bringing the gospel to the world through the local church to use as they use their gifts serving each other, growing towards maturity, raising up new leaders who then go out into the world, making more disciples who come to faith in Christ, who are integrated into the family of God, another local church, who learn to serve one another, and the process repeats itself over and over and over again. By the way, that's been the process since the beginning. We're here today because of that repeated process. Now, what do we do with this? I know this is kind of a strange part to leave off, but there's a whole lot more to say, but you know how I already go along anyway. So what do we do with this part right here? Well, first of all, as always, if you're not in Christ, repent and believe the gospel. And I will never presume to know who is in Christ and who isn't. I am not God. What I do know is I'm called to love, to sow the seed, love the people, and pray for God to change hearts. And so part of sowing the seed is calling people to repent and believe the gospel. Secondly, we need to recognize and confess the truth that Paul, that he's communicating here. Those who are in Christ are part of the family of God, and being in community is an essential part of the Christian life. Let's just confess it. Let's just own it. That being part of Christ means to be part of his body, that just as much as you need him, you need the church. And we need to be bold about this. We need to become bold about this truth. As Bodhi Bauckham always says, you know, that most Christians live by the 11th commandment. Thou shalt be nice. And we believe that one at the expense of all the other ones. We live at a time where we don't want to ruffle people's feathers or challenge how they feel about certain things. But the truth is, just as those around us who do not believe need to hear the gospel and be called to repent and believe, those around us who claim to be Christians need to hear the truth that they are to be in fellowship. They are called by God into the family of God. You don't have to come here. That's why there are churches all over the place, Bible-believing churches that they can be a part of. But we need to call them to be in fellowship. We need to wake up those who are apathetic. We need to challenge those who are stubborn. We need to confront those who are nominal in their Christian faith. And we not, need not be deterred by their excuses. Because there's a lot of them. Well, I just don't need to be, I don't need to be in the church to be a Christian. It's true. You don't have to, you're not saved by your church attendance. But for those who refuse to be a part of the body of Christ, if you're refusing to be part of the body of Christ, you have every reason to examine your faith and see if you're in Christ. Because to love God is to love what God loves. And you know what God loves? He loves his church. It's his bride. You understand that, right? Be like me going to my buddy and going, hey, I love you, man, but I hate your wife. You see, you see the dichotomy there, right? Well, pastor, you know, I just don't go to church because I got hurt. That's a real excuse. That's a real thing that happens, right? People get hurt in church. They get their feelings hurt or even worse, right? Someone hurt my feelings or someone did something wrong. That's why I don't go to church. My question is this. Did you ever get hurt in school? Oh, you, oh, you did. Oh, oh, so you quit school. No, you didn't quit school. Well, why did you keep going? Well, because you had to is what you were supposed to do. Okay, I understand. Oh, did you get hurt at work? Yeah. Has, has anybody at work ever hurt your feelings? Right. I mean, we're talking to people who work at Borax. That, that happens sometimes, right? right? Did anybody ever hurt your feelings at work? Did anybody ever do something that really kind of harmed you? Maybe they cost you some money. Maybe they got you in trouble. Maybe, you know, right? But so did you quit work? Well, no. Well, why? Because you, you have to go to work. It really comes down to priorities. It really, I mean, it really comes down to priorities. And, and I'm not saying like, like if a person, if, if you go to a church and, you know, you've been hurt and there's like, you've been abused or spiritual abuse, right? I'm not saying that you stay there. I'm saying you find another church, 
with biblically qualified elders who can help you through that. The fact is, is we will prioritize in America school. We'll make kids go to school, but we don't make them go to church. We will prioritize work. We'll prioritize youth sports and hobbies. And even those areas, we will experience great difficulty and pain, but still remain committed to those. But when it comes to church, we have one bad experience, and then we just decide, I'm not ever doing that again. Not to mention, who was, the, who was hurt the worst by the church? Jesus. I mean, he was betrayed by one of his closest friends. And one of his very best friends did not even know him. And everybody else left him, left him, ran. But he didn't turn his back on the church. He, he died for the church. He gave all he had for the church. Now, we're not asking people to die for the church. But we're asking people to really examine their hearts with respect to their relationship with God. If you're in Christ, you need to be part of his family. And we're not asking people to go back to unhealthy relationships. Never, ever, ever will I ever call anybody to that. But what we are calling people to is to come back to the scriptures and see that every believer is called by Christ into the family of God to be under the leadership of elders in a local church and then to use the gifts that God has given them to walk humbly and to love and to serve one another for his glory and all of our good. And we need to be bold in that. We need to call people to repent and believe the gospel. And we need to call those people who claim to be of the faith back into the church family. Because brothers and sisters, there's a whole world out there that's lost. There's a whole world out there that's lost. And you know what? It's not going to be a couple of pastors who are really good at their job. They're going to go out there and save them. It's going to be the church loving each other, serving each other, building each other up, equipping each other, then to go out and do that work, storming the gates of hell together, that we'll see the gospel spread. We'll see the revival happen. Let me pray for you. You've been listening to the preaching ministry of Pastor Sherman Burkhead, a production of First Baptist Church in Boron, California. Our website address is fbcboron.org. And would you please consider partnering with us financially as we work to share the hope and the gospel of Jesus Christ with our community and our world.